This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Garrett Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Garrett Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app that makes training fun. Because fun is fast. Close That's a bit of Welsh for you. Geraint, you seem to have had a rather busy weekend, uh, a little bit of a roller coaster. If people haven't seen your social media recently, let me introduce this story and you could do it properly for us. Coming up next on Crowd Network, a new series of true crime thrillers. <laughs> Episode one, Geraint's bike. <laughs> yeah, so I was on my bike and I don't know why I started talking then. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I was on my bike, just a nice little afternoon ride. I was with a mate, Michael Valgren. Yeah, we stopped for coffee because we'd both, it was quite late in the day and we hadn't had lunch. It was about half two. So we stopped stopped there many times before. A little cafe in Menton, which is 20 minutes from Monaco on the way towards Italy. Um, little retirement sort of place, really. You know, average age must be 65. We stopped there. Cafe Italiano, it's called. We left our bikes outside. We just sat, well, inside, but the, the table closest to the door. I could see the front of my wheel just about. And part of me was thinking, shall I move it so I can see, you know, at least half my bike? But I was like, ah, oh. you know, it's meant on a Sunday. So yeah, we'll have our sandwich, have a drink. And then the owner of the calf walks out of the calf. You know, he's an Italian guy, you know, he's just, you know, as they do, walking out, just chilling, looking around. And he turns back around and he looks at us and says, two bikes. And we were like, well, yeah, like there's two. he didn't just give me a backy. <laughs> and uh, he was like, oh, but there's only one here. And we were like, Haha, yeah, okay, yeah, thanks, mate. It's like, no, 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 there's only one bike. And we were still thinking he was joking, but we get up, walk outside, and we're like, oh, bollocks, my bike's gone. So then the Italian guy is like pre-flamboyant now and, you know, Italian style, just going nuts, like, ah, oh, you should put your bike here, put your bike here. And he's like running around looking for cameras. And he's like, ah, vieni, vieni, like, come, come with me. He's going quite fast now. I've got my cycling shoes on, like, clippity clopping down this pavement and onto the roads he's like look camera there camera there tv tv goes off running down this side street oh another one there another one there telling us to ring the police and do this and that so i rang a guy well i rang sar first she didn't pick up as per and uh so then i rang a guy in the team just said oh mate there i've had my bike nicked just to tell you rung the police they said i gotta fill some online form blah 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 sar rings back explained to her i was like instead of sar coming to get me i'll get an uber that was it really. I was like, oh, that bike's going to be gone. But it was it was actually unique because it's a new frame, a Dogma F, but it's painted up as an F12, which was the previous frame. Um, mismatched wheels. It was filthy. You know, if anyone tried to sell it, it was obvious that it was my bike pretty much. Has it got your name on it as well and a, and a British flag? Yes. Yeah, Thomas and a, a British flag. And then literally like I've been home for 15 minutes and then Sar's phone is ringing. And she doesn't like answering to people she doesn't know. So I pick it up. And the guy's like, oh, Mr. Thomas. I was like, yeah. It's like, oh, this is um, the police. And he goes, oh, we've uh, we've got your bike. It's in Menton. I was like, but yeah, that was that was fast. Are you sure it's mine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Some police were, were driving past, saw the guy and stopped him. I had a look at the bike and took it. I was like, oh, right, okay. So I drove back into Menton. Didn't know where the police station was. Ended up going to the gendarme which is a different type of, I don't even know the difference, but there's a national police and then the gendarmes. Anyway, I was on the buzzer and then I was like, parlez-vous anglais, do you speak English? Not, not. So I was trying to like explain and come to get my bike and he was like, no, 
Police National, Police National. Can you just give me a burst of how you were trying to explain? Because I want to get into this situation even more. Uh, <laughs> my my bike, uh, Perdue. Uh, police, uh, <laughs> not Perdue anymore. <laughs> I was like, they didn't I didn't understand. Uh, EC, EC. I learned that word off you as well, Tom, back in the day. Yeah. I was like, my bike, EC. And he's like, no. And then he started speaking a bit of English then, so he blatantly could. But he was like, police national, police national. Okay, thanks. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> no idea where I'm going now. So I'm walking down the street. I'm like, where the hell is this national police thing? And then I just saw traffic lights and there was a police van at a red light. So I was like, oh, I'll just go and ask them. <laughs> Run over and like waving through the window. And the guy's like looking at me like, oh God, what's he? Winds down his window. I was like, parlez-vous anglais? No. Ah, uh... Police National Office. <laughs> and then the guy in the back goes, oh, Thomas. And I was like, yeah. He's like, where are the guys that found your bike? And then I was like, oh, oh. sweet. Thanks. High five and fist pumping all these policemen. And they were like, get in, get in the back. So they opened the door to this like riot van, basically. Jump in the back with these three coppers, put the blue lights on, do a U-turn, drive me to the police station take me in and my bike's just stood there like in the police station so i was asking them like oh what what happened and they were like oh so we um i don't know if they because i tweeted about it when i was in the uber going home i don't know if they saw my tweet so i had an eye out for it or if they just they they said they saw a guy riding this bike and they it just didn't look right like he wasn't dressed like a professional athlete basically not that I do anyway when I'm off the bike. So they probably looked at me then and thought, actually, yeah, neither do you. <laughs> but um, <laughs> He's a bit big at the moment to ride that bike, they thought. <laughs> yeah. um, so apparently they stopped him and then they then they saw that it was actual, they were cyclists, I think, a couple of them. Basically, yeah, they realised that it was stolen. They saw my name on it, arrested the guy, took the bike. So I had to go up then and give like a, um, like make a, an official complaint and stuff, say what happened, like a statement or whatever. And um I asked the guy, I was like, oh, so who was it? Like, you know, what on his own and stuff? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he's 15. He showed me like this. They took a picture of him when he came in and it looked like he had just gone to Disneyland. He was like massive cheesy grin, like, <laughs> like dead happy. I was like, I was like, did he take that here? And the policeman's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of strange because especially when we get the guest on to this pod, like, and what he ends up talking about, I did feel a bit like, oh, I obviously want him to, you can't go around stealing bikes, can you? Like, you want him to pay for it and be punished. But I was kind of like, oh, you kind of want to help him a bit because he can't be in a good place if Mm. you're doing that. But anyway, so do my statement, whatever. They gave him a Garmin as well. That was the thing I was most worried about because I haven't downloaded my training this week. And if it's not downloaded, (laughs) it didn't happen, did it? And it doesn't exist. Exactly. So um, yeah, I'm going to have to download that and actually see if he has got any talent. See what he got up to, what speed, what what power <laughs> he's putting out. Imagine he's done you some extra K. <laughs> yeah. He was lucky I charged my gears actually because normally my gears have run out and I've got like a flat tyre or something. So yeah, at least it was, it was in good working order for him. But uh, yeah, so that was random, wasn't it? Like that was all within the space of maybe two hours. Okay, uh, away from the bike, Garrett, did you notice anything different today about the podcast? Uh, yeah, you haven't shaved. This is not really a shaving podcast, is it, to be fair? <laughs> I am. Um, people can't see you, can they? No, they can't. Have you ever, just like, <laughs> in all the whole marginal gains thing, did everyone ever say to you that you should have a shave before a race? Uh, no, they didn't. 
but people did shave their arms, so yeah. So you shave your arms and your legs, but because you quite favour a sort of a faux moustache, don't you? Or like a, you've generally got something <laughs> under your nose. Yeah, that's, I'm that's amazed more, that no one ever said anything about that. It's pure laziness, that is. But and I only shaved my arms once. That was for London Olympic final, and we smoked. Who were we racing? The Aussies. So I didn't even mm. need to bother. I didn't need to bother doing it in the end. But I'm not a hairy guy, am I? So I'm all right. When the arm hair grew back, was it the same as the arm hair that had left? Or was it in different colour, consistency? <laughs> no, it was all pretty similar, to be fair. I think if I had done it regularly, it would have come back, you know, a lot thicker. It seemed, just, mm. Well, so I've been told. I don't really know. But yeah, but as I say, I'm blessed with a very smooth, not hairy skin. Tremendous. Well, um, yes, I haven't <laughs> shaved. But the other thing that you might have noticed is that we've changed the music. Um, so a few episodes ago, Frank got in touch to say he'd like to compose us a new GTCC theme tune. And he has done exactly that. So for this episode, the music comes to you from one of our very own members. What do you think? Yeah, it's decent. I think um, they sent through a few versions, didn't they? And they did progressively get much better. So... Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I mean, what we're sort of saying there is the first one wasn't very good, but we've got to the point where the last one really is good, so everyone's happy. Improvement curve was very generous. Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. It's that simple. He's called KC. He's an American vigilante. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. Tom, good news. The sponsors are back for season two. That is momentous, G. And momentous just so happens to be the sponsors of this next bit. But who are they? <laughs> well, for all you listeners that were listening last season, you'll remember them as Amp Human. Aha, yeah, a leading human performance company that works with over 150 pro and elite sporting teams. And once again, we've got an exclusive discount for you. Gee, what's the lowdown? Well, I use uh, PR lotion all the time. You basically rub it directly in your muscles, you get bicarb directly into them and, you know, allows me to maximise training sessions and improves recovery time. Yeah, if you try it, the clinical data says you'll get 53% less muscle soreness and be able to do 25% more training intervals. I like those odds, G. So if you fancy slapping it all over your legs before your next big ride or workout, go to livemomentous.com. So that first bit, all one word, L-I-V-E, then M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S. And because you listen to this podcast, we've got you an exclusive discount. Just use the code GTCC2021 at the checkout for 25% off Momentus's PR lotion. Happy training. Right, Tom, our guest today is an endurance athlete, not a pro cyclist, but um, well, probably a pro athlete as well. He's got to be paid for some of the crazy stuff that he does. But anyway, we all know that you love endurance athletes on this pod as well. So I thought we'd tap up uh, this guy's incredible story, really, how he sort of came into... He's he's an Iron Man. Sorry, forgot to mention that. Um, my intros are really bad, but basically, welcome to the GTCC, <laughs> John McAvoy. 
Thanks for having me on, guys. Actually, maybe you could do your own little intro. Just tell our listeners just a brief sort of overview of you, really. Introduce yourself. Yeah, so I currently compete in Ironman Triathlon, but I didn't start off when I was a young kid wanting to be an athlete when I got older. My real dad died before I was born. Um, so when I was brought up into the world, like the really, I only had my mum and my sister and my mum's, like my aunties, my mum's sisters bringing me up, which was seven women. So I grew up in this really loving childhood as a little boy. And being an inquisitive child that I always was, I kind of wanted to know where my dad was, where was heaven. Um, and this really had a real sort of profound impact over me as a child, because from a very young age, I realised that I wasn't going to live forever. Um, and it, honestly, it had such a powerful impact over me. And I made this connection from a very young age that acquiring wealth was like, was success. And the more money I had was the more successful I'd be as a person. And that would be my legacy. And what you could only say what happened next was like a perfect storm of when I was eight years old, my mum's ex-husband that she married when she was really, really young, like 16 years old, um, just got released from prison after serving 16 years for armed robbery. And he'd come back into my mum's life and he just opened up this whole world of organised crime to me as a very young man and... And that basically led me to completely giving up my education at school. I started spending more and more time around these organised criminals as a young kid. I was truant in massively because to me, education wasn't going to get me what I wanted in life. And up to this point, I love history. I love learning. Um, I become really disrespectful to my teachers when I was at school. And then I left school at 16 years old. And, and I, again, I feel so far removed from this now, what I'm saying to you. But I went and bought a firearm because um, I was very driven and I, I wanted to make millions of pounds. And, and I thought armed robbery was going to be the way in which I did it. I go to prison when I'm 18, come out, um, and then go back again when when I'm 22 for two life sentences. Um, and sort of, yeah, that was sort of a very condensed version of how I ended up in prison. Compared to your introduction, G, I would say that is better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit more of a, um, yeah, a, a life story, yeah. But as, as I said, though, in my tiny introduction, unbelievable story. So obviously you say you, you end up going to prison for two life sentences at 22, what happens next then? You, you, how do you even end up being an Ironman athlete now? Obviously, uh, where are you now at the moment? Do you? So I've I've come back to London for a visit, but um, I moved to France last summer. Um, I fell in love with the mountains, mate. I absolutely fell in love. Like for obviously much of my life, I was in cage. I spent ten years of my life in a cage, basically, and then I went to the mountains in 2015. It was the first time I was allowed to leave the United Kingdom. And I just went to, I first of all went to Lake Hennessy, but I had never experienced the high, high mountains. And then I went to Alp Huez and it just blew me away. I've never in my life ever, ever, ever felt love like I feel towards that place and, and the mountains and, and being in nature. I've never felt so free in my whole life. And I know, obviously, they call it the Hollywood climb and it's just an epic climb in the Tour de France and and like this year alone, I've ridden up it not far off a hundred times in a year. <laughs> like, so every time I go home, I have to ride up the mountain to get back. So whenever <laughs> I finish whatever long ride I'm doing, I have to climb out the west to get home at the end of the ride. But I just, man, I absolutely love it. And I appreciate living there so much. And I'm so fortunate. And it's, it's had such a positive impact over my life. If only, G, there was someone else on this podcast who also had very happy memories of Alp Duez. <laughs> I was going to say that's a well, I, I've got fond memories, but I'm not sure I'd want to ride up it at the end of every ride. That's bonkers. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what's your quickest time up there then? You must know it. Oh, mate, do you know what? I, well. I, I was worried you was going to ask me this because I feel quite insecure now by telling you because I know how quick you <laughs> went up it. But my, my, my fastest time up it is 47 minutes. 
Wow, that's rapid, that is. That's good. good. That's probably you tapping it out, though. I reckon that's probably you having a tap out up it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be fair, though, I, yeah, it's, I was following the wheels most of the time, though. I wasn't pushing my own wind. And you had that little rest, G, didn't you, as well? You had that little rest where the four of you all just came abreast and had a little Sunday cycle for about five minutes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah after Nibali crashed, we were all a bit like, oh, what are we going to do now? So, John, take us back to closer to the beginning. It's September 2005. You're in Eltham in South London. Yeah. Tell us what happened next. So I probably have to go back a little bit, couple, like maybe just a week or so before that. So I, when I got released from prison... Uh, the first time I went to prison when I was eight, when I was 18 years old. And then I come out when I was 20, 21, I was out of prison for four days and I found tracking devices on my car where the police were following me around. And I knew if I carried on living in the United Kingdom, I'd go back to prison because I thought they will catch me for something. So I lived that typical lifestyle you can imagine. Then the minute I had an opportunity, I went out to, um, I went down to Southern Spain. I was in the Netherlands. I was hanging out with criminals. I was abusing my body. I was taking drugs I was just living this very high octane life. I was 20, 22 years old. I was just very carefree. I was consumed by the acquisition of wealth again. I was mixing with people that had lots of money. Um, and I just wanted to make money out of criminality. When I went to prison the first time, it made me worse. It didn't rehabilitate me. I didn't want to change because growing up from being a quite a young kid, criminality was my identity. All my friends, everyone that I knew were involved in criminal activity. To me, that was normal. And then I come back to United Kingdom, for which was only going to be for a week. Um, and when I come back for my friend's birthday, I end up meeting up with one of my stepdad's mates. And he asked me if I went to commit a robbery with him. Initially, I said no. And then what I'm about to tell you now was the best decision I've ever made in my life. He told me the sum of money, the greed overcome me again. I thought it was easy. I thought I'd do it, go back to Spain. Jobs are good and... What I didn't realise when I agreed to saying yes that morning was there was 100 police officers in different cars, surveillance operation, watching him. And I just walked into one of the biggest police surveillance operations in London at that moment in time. And then three days later, like you've just said, I'm face down with 20 machine guns pointing towards me, thinking my life was over. Like, I genuinely thought they were going to kill me. I genuinely did. Like, when, when I saw this tsunami of police officers running up, we were gonna we we're gonna commit a robbery on a cash in transit van, and the police were waiting in ambush. And I just remember this this tsunami of policemen running towards me with handguns and machine guns, and I just locked on with one police officer, and our eyes were just looking at everything else was a blur. And he had his gun up and he was screaming for me to get on the floor. And I just remember tensing up, like I, obviously <laughs> I couldn't have re- re- repelled the bullet, but he was like, he's gonna kill me, he's gonna kill me. Um, anyway, they they didn't thankfully, and they dragged me to the floor. And I just remember um, I was just completely and utterly deflated and they put me in the back of the police car. And when I was a young man, when I went to prison the first time, a police officer called DCI Curry arrested me and he was the one that didn't think I got long enough. And when I was in the back of the police car, I was pretending I had concussion because I thought if they think I've got concussion, they have to take me to hospital. And if they take me to hospital, I'm just going to try to break out. Like I was so desperate not to go back to prison because I knew what was coming this time. The first time I went to prison, I didn't really know um, but I'd been in prison before, so now I knew what was coming. I knew the segregation units and everything that prison is. I knew I was going to go back to that for a long time. And this DCI Curry sat in the front driver's seat, and I didn't realise it was him at first, and he kept repeating my name, and he kept repeating my name, and he said, John, John, John. And I looked up at him, and straight away I recognised him, and he looked at me with a grin on his face, and he said, you haven't learnt your lesson, have you? And he went, you're finished. And when we were driving to the police station... To the day that I die, I will never, ever forget this. I was in this armed police escort in these undercover cars. 
and it was a sunny morning and we were driving down this high street and there were people shopping, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, walking down the street and it was hot. And I remember him saying to me, he went, look out the window and he went, you will not be seeing this for a long, long time. And mate, I would have done absolutely anything to swap places with someone outside of that car at that moment. But when I was at the police station, I just remember sitting in this police station and I heard this like massive industrial fan. And that industrial fan, I thought it was, was a helicopter and it was above the police station. And I looked around and there was policemen with our station dogs and they put me in this special like bomb-proof van with all the windows taped up. And they basically made me a double category A prisoner because they thought I was going to try to escape or someone would try to break me out of prison. And then I really understood the severity of <laughs> of what was going to come. Um, and they transferred me to the court. I got remanded into custody and then they moved me to Belmarsh Prison. That's just nuts. Sorry, I, I'm just sat here just like, as I said, I read your book, but I'm still like just hearing it again. You just sat your mouth open. Like, I don't know if I've made this up now in my head, but were you in prison with like some terrorist? Um, yeah. Yeah. Am I right here, Tom? Tom's a professional. He's done the... Abu Hamza. That's the dude. Yeah, like the, the so but so to for your listeners, so people have a, a comprehension, like to have an understanding. So when I got moved to Belmarsh Prison, I was in the reception area, and they process you and they ask you like what religious group you are, your name and address, next to King, and like again, I was just being as difficult as what I could because I was brought up to hate these people. So when I went to prison. I was as difficult as what I could be, and because I had fought, because I was pretending I had concussion in the police car, one of the senior officers in the reception area come to my cell, and he said to me, "Just to let you know, you're going on the HSU." And at that point, because I heard H, I thought it was like the hospital wing. Um, anyway, I didn't really think anything more of it. And then he went away, and then they come back, and then he. He then told me I was going on to the high security unit in Belmarsh Prison, which is a prison within a prison. It's um, it's the most secure prison in Western Europe. And again, I still didn't really under, understand the severity of this and what was about to happen. And then they basically put me in a pair of handcuffs and put me in this little van and drove me through like the perimeter or inside the prison. And then like you go to this like what you can only class again to simplify. It's like a bunker. But he's he's got his own perimeter wall. The doors open. You drive through that perimeter wall. The doors close behind, and none of the prison officers have keys, so you can't take hostages on there. And they walk me all through these airlock doors again, and then like you kind of walk outside, but you feel like you're inside because there's so much anti-helicopter wire to stop helicopters landing on the prison grounds and stuff. That when you look up, it's like being in a in a hamster cage. It's literally like the light comes through, but there's just so much anti helicopter wire. It feels like you're inside, but the air temperature changes, so you know you're outside. And then he opened up this door, and the prison officers have to be on the other side of the cage, so you can't take hostages on on the exercise yard. And then, sort of, as the door opened, I walk out, and there's like seven men just doing circles, walking around in circles, and and straight away, like I instantly instantly recognised them because they'd been all over the media. But it was uh, Sheikh Abu Hamza. He was fighting extradition to America and the 21-7 attempted suicide bombers. And then really, like, I knew I was in a lot of trouble before this point. But uh, when I started seeing that, I really understood how much trouble I was in 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 regards of how much the police, obviously, were going to do everything they could to make sure that I got the longest sentence possible. So just to explain to people why. So I wasn't a threat to national security. The reason they put me in there is because the police believed that I had the capability and the will to want to be able to escape from lawful custody. And they thought 
there would be people that would be prepared to help me break out of prison with with using firearms. So because of that, your escape has to be made impossible. So they then take you outside of the mainstream prison and they put you in this tiny little unit. And I was basically in that tiny little unit for two years to what to I went on trial at Woolwich Crown Court. Wow. <laughs> and how from there, John, from that position you're in where things look pretty hopeless for you, how does endurance exercise enter your life? Because the conditions you've just described, when I think about endurance exercise, G, I think about long runs. I think about going out for your on your bike for four or five hours or swimming in a lake. How how on earth do you start becoming an endurance athlete in those conditions? So obviously my journey into sport is so unique. And, and honestly, if, if you went back to my school now and said to any of my PE teachers that one day this guy would become an athlete, like I was awful at every sport. I was overweight. I was always the chubby kid that got put in goal. I couldn't kick a ball. Um, I, I, I didn't think I was good at anything physically. Like I just didn't think I was, I was always that kid basically that just used to cheat on a cross country, deliberately forget my PE kit. <laughs> I did everything I could not to do PE when I, when I, when I, when even when I did like going to school, PE was the worst subject. But when I went to prison, someone once said to me, when you go to prison, you don't live, you just exist. And I spent a year when I was in prison in a segregation unit. And I was locked up for 24 hours a day, literally 24 hours a day. It's not an exaggeration. I had no, I didn't go outside for exercise. I used to wash in the sink. I didn't cut my hair. I used the only thing I was, they, they gave me a razor blade. I used to cut, um, like have a shave. And when I was in that situation, I needed to feel alive. I needed to feel like I was a human being. So I used to read books every day and want to educate myself. And I started just doing these circuits in this prison cell. I didn't even know the names of most of the exercises. And as the weeks and months progressed, I used to do like 10 burpees, 10 press-ups, 10 step-ups, 10 squat thrusts. And then as the weeks built up and the months, like I said, I ended up doing a thousand repetitions of each exercise. And it normally take me like an hour and a half to two hours. And then I'd read the rest of the day. I wouldn't sleep I, I in the day. I didn't want to sleep through my prison sentence. I went to, I went to come out. But a better criminal. I didn't do it to like sort of change my life. And then... When I went back to prison the second time, it, it instinctively, it started just, that was how I was going to get through this journey. So when I was in that unit, again, I started doing the cell circuits. I was focusing on my case. I was reading books every day, but I didn't want to rehabilitate. Like I was trying to find ways how I could get out of this place. But that was getting me through that journey of being incarcerated and being on my own for so many hours a day. And, and, and it made me just feel like I was a human being. It was a way that like, even though I lost control of everything in my life, like I had no control realistically what I ate, like everything was controlled by other people. And then suddenly I'm in that cell. The only thing I had control over that they could not stop me from doing was my own body. And that was me exercising and me reading books. And yeah, like, again, I did not intend that like eight years later, I'd get on, I would get on an indoor rowing machine and have this ability locked in my body that I didn't even know I had. And, and the prison officer saw how good I was on this indoor rowing machine. That's one thing I was going to ask. When you're doing these circuits, like, what's the food like? Because I can imagine after a week, if you're, like, nutritionally, you're probably absolutely nailed by, you know what I mean? When you're not getting the right stuff in, but you're just doing all these massive drills, like, day after day, it's going to take its toll. Yeah, it was, it was, re- it was difficult because I didn't, I used to try not to eat prison food. So I used to eat porridge. I basically used to be able to buy, like, you get a canteen, so you can order products and stuff. Like, you can order, like, Weetabix and tuna and stuff like that off the prison canteen but you get like 20 pound a week to spend of your own money like people can send you money in from outside 
So I used to try not to eat the prison food because a lot of it's just like starchy carbs. It's awful. Like it is bad as what you see on the film sometimes. But this is when I was in there. They used to give this stuff out called goulash and it was disgusting. It was like snot. And and they used to do these curries with chips. <laughs> so the only thing I used to take off the hot plate when they used to serve it up was the veg and the fruit and sometimes the rice. Other than that, I just used to have porridge nearly every single day and eat tins of tuna and that was my, and nuts. That that was basically my diet when, when I was in prison for most of my prison sentence. I bet you were lean. Mate, I must have dropped about three stone. If you saw a picture of me when I went into prison when I was 18 and then you saw like, when I got out, it was like a different human. Like I genuinely looked like mm. a completely different person. I lost so much weight. My body fat must have been about 8% when I got out. But he's like, again, I've just disability that in my body, like, that was what my body shape was always like. But when I was a kid and I was eating all that crap, obviously I put weight on and, and I didn't realise I was good at sport because I didn't ever really engage with it. So what's the point, John, where you go from just waiting to get out of prison so you can go back to the old lifestyle and the point where something changes for you mentally and you think, actually, when I get out of here, I'm going to be different. So it, it was a long process because like, I, I realised when I was in that unit that I wasn't going to be able to escape. That was off the cut. Like they made it impossible. I went to court. I got two life sentences and, and sometimes people don't really understand what a life sentence is. And so when you say it, people just think you spent, you spend your whole life in prison. What they don't understand is when you get life, you get a minimum tariff, you serve your minimum tariff. And if the system doesn't think you've been rehabilitated, they can keep you in prison for the remainder of your life on earth. So even though I'm talking to you right now, I am still technically serving a life sentence, but I'm serving it in a community. So if I ever did anything ever again, I get recalled back to prison and I'll go back on my life sentence. And then I have to go through the whole process of parole again and proving I'm not a danger to the public. So basically it makes it easier for them to be able to recall you back to prison if they think you pose a risk to the public. So when I got these two life sentences, I'm in this high security unit. They transfer me out of there to another maximum security prison and I realised that I wasn't going to be able to just break out. I wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. So it was like, how do I get out of this position? Again, the mindset of a criminal, I didn't want to change. I didn't want to be rehabilitated. Because to me as a kid, I was like basically always taught people that did change were weak and they'd been broken by the state and the system had broken them. So I've got this very militant mindset to all this. And then I realised the way I'm going to have to do it is play the game. So if they want me to do all their reoffending behaviour courses, I was going to do it. I was doing it and it was working. After three and a half years, they downgraded me to a category B prisoner. And then then there was potential of me getting transferred. I got moved to a category B prison then. I got moved out of maximum security. And when I got there, I had access to mobile phones, which you're not allowed to have. I'm talking to my mates outside of prison. I'm talking about when I get out, I was just going to basically go away again and go out to Holland and get a fake passport and all that stuff. Because um, again, I didn't want to change. And it was only when... I found out my best friend had died in 2009. It was one of the most, I can't even ver like verbalise it into words. Like it was one of the most powerful experiences I'd ever been through in my life. Like I had never in my life on this earth ever actually lost anyone that I ge genuinely loved or cared for. And when my mate died um, in a car crash in the Netherlands, um, he was committing an armed robbery one night with, with three other people from Liverpool. And two of them had died with him and the driver broke his spine I remember finding this out off my cousin and I was in disbelief. And the following night, because it was like four criminals from the UK committing a crime in the Netherlands, it made news at 10. And I just remember being in my prison cell in Loudon Grange 
and looking at the last moments of my friend's life on the CCTV camera on News at 10. And I could tell it was him because when the camera froze, they, they did a still from the CCTV camera from inside. It was like a bank. I could see it was his eyes. And my mate threw his whole life away for nothing. At 24 years old, he never reached his potential. He never had children, never travelled the world. He was an incredibly good person, and he was. And I, and I often say this, good people do do bad things. That, that he, he, Deep down in his soul, he was a good person, and he, he got sucked into that toxic, vile life. And he got unlucky one night, and it cost him his, his existence on this earth. And I looked at my own life, and then I realised that, like, how lucky I was that I was still alive, um, because I could have been shot dead that day in Eltham. And 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 this, it was just like this light bulb went off in my head, and I, I realised that that could have been me, and and the, and the, and the thought process of never seeing him again, and I just realised all the people I looked up to as a kid, like they were all old men rotting in prison. None of them have ever achieved anything, and this little boy that was growing up in Crystal Palace that wanted to achieve something in my life and be successful or something, I was I was just basically pissing my life away down into a drain. Like I was rotting in a cage. I was in I was literally in the shape of my life, and just my life was just draining out of me in this in this horrible place. And I just made a decision that night. I was done. I did not want to be around these people anymore. I didn't want that horrible, vile, toxic life. But I was lost, Tom. I, I genuinely didn't know what I could do because I didn't know anything else other than what I did. So then you end up on a rowing machine, obviously. And is it true it was about like you jump on for the first time and you do like 20 miles or something? So the the first time I got on a rowing machine, G, was there was an inmate. He was a, I will never forget it. He was a Tottenham Hotspur fan. He was, he was overweight. He oh. was from North London. And he was like one of the most cockney people I'd ever meet. Like, I was all right, mate. Like, and and he was. And then when you're in prison, people don't realise they just think everyone gets gym every day. And it doesn't work like that because in prison, what they do, you get gym with your wing, your prison wing, because they, there's a lot of gang problems in prison. So there's no mixing of different wings at the same time in different places around the prison. But this guy Mickey was down the gym every single day, seven days a week. And I said to him one day, "What are you doing?" And he said to me, "I'm running this million meters." And he was doing it for a charity. And he went, if you ask the prison officers if you can do the same thing, they let you have like basically a, a note to come off your wing, come down the gym. So I have to do all these checks to make sure you, you aren't affiliated to any gangs. And I went and asked and, and he said, okay, you can do it. So that was it. So I see this guy, Mickey, doing this millimetres and then I'm going to run a millimetres for charity. I started raising some money on the wing. Like some of the prisoners were sponsoring me like 50 pences and a pound. I had some family send me in some money. And and that gave me gym seven days a week. So the first session I ever done was I did two hours, and and I remember like so vividly when I was on that rowing machine, it completely transcended me out of prison. Like I didn't understand endorphins. I didn't I didn't know, but like, I had this feeling like this like runner's high because like this this sensation that like I was being lifted out of prison. Obviously, it was the chemicals in my brain from the endorphins. But everyone left me alone. For two hours, I could have been anywhere in the world. And I started visualising, like, I was running across the ocean and, and prison officers left me alone and prisoners left me alone. And I went back down to the gym the next day and I did it again and again and again and again. And I rode the first million metres in a month. And I remember when I did it, mate... That's nuts. I was like, I want to do another one because it, it's going to keep me off the wing because... When you're in prison and you want to go through this process of changing yourself and being a better person, 
Like, it's like, the only way I can explain it to people listening, it's like, if you was addicted to drugs, but you're, la- you're locked in a crack den, and you don't want to be addicted to drugs anymore, and you want to get away from these people, but you're trapped with them, how hard it is to get off drugs. So when I was on that RAM machine, it got me away from that group of people all day, and it got me down the gym in a positive environment doing something that made me feel amazing, and everyone just left me alone. So I did a million the next month. Then I asked to do the, uh, a million on the third month because I kept thinking this is going to help me get towards the end of my sentence. And when I got to three million, a prisoner went to me one day. You do realise if you row five million metres, that's equivalent to round across the Atlantic Ocean. It's 5,000 kilometres. And I didn't know that. So I thought, actually, it's quite a cool thing to say I've done, like I've rowed across the Atlantic on an indoor rowing machine. And I asked if I could just do the extra two million and Craig, the gym manager, went, yeah, absolutely fine. As long as you keep raising money, John, you keep doing it. Don't get in any trouble. I like the way you just said very casually, I'll just do the extra two million. But it was, but mate, it was like, (laughs) it it, it just, it lifted me out of that place. Like to me, that was my freedom. Like it freed my soul from prison. It it wasn't, I, I didn't have this connection to like physical activity, like the same as probably what other people got. It wasn't a chore. It, it was like I wasn't doing it to get fit. I, I generally wasn't. I wasn't doing it to break records. I wasn't trying to do it to be fast. But I didn't realise how good I was until, like, mate, honestly, I think back now, like, how, like, I, I don't believe in God. I, I don't, I, but there's something, there's some something spiritual where one day I do 10,000 metres as hard as I can. And I program the, the, the concept too for 10,000 metres. So the clock counts down. So you go 10, nine, like you go all the way down to zero. And then, and then the time just stops. And literally, just as I was finishing, this absolutely amazing human being, he was a prison officer that worked in the prison gym called Darren Davis, was behind me and he saw the monitor and I finished. And he went, that is really, really quick. And, and I didn't, again, I didn't realise, I didn't even know there was weight classes in rowing. But this prison officer, he, he, could, he could identify that it was good. Like if it was any other prison officer, if it was any other person in that prison, they probably wouldn't have realised. And he went away and he come back with these pieces of paper and he printed off all of the world and British indoor rowing records. And he gave them to me in the prison gym and I was looking at them and I was like, they can't be real because like, I could nearly break some of them now. <laughs> and I genuinely didn't think they were real records. And I went back to my cell and I was looking at them and I was like, do you know what? I'm going to ask him if I can try to break them. And when I, when I originally asked him, like, I never thought for a moment they were going to allow me to do it. Like, I just thought I'd be able to do it to say I'd done it. Um, but the governor of the prison was a man called Gareth Sands. Darren went to him and went, I honestly believe if you allow John to try to do this, it would change his life. And Gareth, being a very sort of Christian man, said, yeah. And he greenlighted it. And then Darren went away to Concept 2 to officiate the records. And he explained the situation. I couldn't do it outside of prison, obviously. I couldn't do it in a public setting because all the records you had to do outside, like in public arenas, or they had to be officiated by people that could come in and look at them. He explained the situation. And they said, look, if he's a prisoner, your prison officers, you have to put a special chip card in a round machine. I had to be weighed and I had to take a photograph of the, of the scales and the monitor after I finished. And then I could try to do the records. And the first record I ever attempted to break was for the marathon. Literally, I just done it. I didn't even know what I was doing. Like, see sports nutrition, it didn't exist. I didn't even know anything. All I remember when I was getting to the back end of because I had never done something where, like, in regards to the rowing, where I was on the rivet for like for two hours and 37 minutes. That was the, that, the record. I think the record now, the record was about 244, 245. And, and I did it in 237. But 
when I was coming to like the last back end of it, like the last 15, 20 minutes, I was, I was bonking. Like I was bonking, mate. Like I was bad. I was, I was, I was throwing a bad whitey. Like I, I was feeling stuff I'd never <laughs> felt before. And I started feeling really clammy. And like, I started feeling like that I just don't feel powerful here. And a, and a prisoner went and got me um, sugar sachets. Do you know, like Tate and Lyle sugar? In the sachets that you get in like caps and stuff. And I was just eating raw sugar. And it, and it, it just got me through the back end of the ergo. But man, honestly, when I finished that record, I was laying in the gym on the mat, on this blue mat. And it was the most amazing feeling I've ever felt in my life. Like, Throughout my whole life, from being a kid, I ne- I wanted to do something in my life, and I just wanted to be I wanted to be successful. I wanted my life to have a meaning. And when I was on that mat and I'd done that record, everything I'd ever wanted as a kid, I felt that moment, and I realised it was so powerful. I realised that it was never about money. It wasn't. It was just the fact that when I was a kid, that was all I saw, and I just thought the only way I'd ever be able to feel that inside me was by being a criminal and, and because it was it was obtainable to me to obtain that money through criminality. And that when I did that, that was it. I remember getting off that mat and I was consumed with being an athlete. I went down the prison library, there was an old lady and you have to order books in. So like if there's not like you normally get your normal like reading literature in prison, which would be autobiographies of criminals and stuff. And I was asking, because Darren started bringing me in books and I don't know, obviously I know some people don't, some people do like him. But honestly, at that moment in time, Lance Armstrong, like I read his autobiography, it's not about the bike. And and it had such a powerful impact over me as, as a person because it, it was like I could find bits in the story where I could relate to them in the journey that I was on and, and where I was. And, and I remember Darren used to print Lance's quotes off and stick them in front of the, the rowing machine. And when I used to like some of, some of them records, like the 100K world record, I was in so much pain, like I'd never experienced it. And I just remember that that quote that he said about quitting lasts forever. And it, no matter how much it hurt me, I was not going to stop. And then Darren was just bringing me in all these books. And I was I was bringing, I was getting books from outside, from the library about athletes. And I, I'd never been exposed to athletes ever in my whole life. Like, And then suddenly I'm reading these autobiographies of like James Cracknell and Paula Radcliffe and all of these people. And like, there were things in it that I used to think the only people that were like me were criminals I didn't realise there was this other group of people with drive, focus, wanting to be good at something. The only people I ever saw like that as a kid were organised criminals. And then I realised, actually, if I if I channel... Because like, I kept thinking change come from you basically not being who you was anymore. And that was the only way I wouldn't be able to do what I did. And I realised I could channel that the way I was as a person and put it into something positive and it, and it could lead me to be you're basically using my body as a vehicle to get me out of that vile toxic world that I, I engaged in as a young man it strikes me as a shame G that that we hadn't written any of your books when John was in prison because that would have been ideal be I mean, forget Lance Armstrong because <laughs> it wasn't about the bike as we found out but you know three books now maybe we need to send some copies to, to Belmarsh <laughs> I mean that'd be amazing if you yeah. can I, yeah, no on, on a serious note like just talking about that like I go into like young offenders institutions and a lot and honestly there is so much potential and talent in those places where kids have just had a shit, shit hand of cards dealt to them in a lottery of birth. And there's so much untapped potential in those places. Like, it, it really does hurt me when I go back into those prisons and you talk to these young men and they're articulate and they're switched on. 
like that are oh, some of some of the athletes I've come across in prison over the years, the wasted of talent that that that's that's just made bad life choices based on their environment. But mate, if yeah, if you ever want yeah. to send any books into Felt Young Offenders, those kids will will get so much out of it. Oh, without a doubt we can do that easily. I just um yeah, for me I always say like, you know, sport it, it doesn't matter. Like we're all in as athletes, we get wrapped up in our own little world thinking that it means everything. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, well, it doesn't because there's so much. It's not the real world. It's just me trying to go up a hill and try and win up a mountain. But then hearing your story and, you know, yeah, just just sport is like massive, isn't it? The impact it can have with people. Yeah, it's incredible. And and you know what, mate? Like I'll come across like my own journey and like the way you progress throughout your life. And I always think we're, all, we're always growing and we're always learning. And like... I realised this, and I, it, it, it took me like when when I got released from prison, I was so consumed with being an athlete, like because I kept thinking that if I was really good at sport, then it would like negate all of the bad I'd done with my life, and I, I didn't want to be defined by being some ex prisoner. I wanted my life to move along in a positive fashion, and, and and I remember when I joined this rowing club, London Rowing Club. It was a high performance centre for lightweight men. I'm rowing with like Olympic athletes, and I remember like. One night I'm on this indoor rowing machine and I've got Sophie Hoskins and Robbie Williams and I'm with these people and I felt really embarrassed by my past and I and I just remember I kept it really close to me. I didn't want people to find out about my past because I made all these amazing friends through rowing. But I was so intoxicated with being a good athlete because I just wanted it to give my life significance and, and not be defined by that person that got released from prison and, and being a prisoner. But do you know what, mate? Do you know what I realised as, as I've gone through the journey I've been through over the years? Do you know all of it doesn't mean anything? Like in the regards of everything I've done on those rowing machines, how quick I've ridden a bike in Ironman, how fast I can run a marathon. Like realistically, I genuinely believe legacy is about what you leave behind and about lifting other people up and helping other people and, and using platform to do something. Like, and, and like I, I haven't got that much of a platform, but I look at the stuff that I'm able to do and brands that I'm able to leverage to do good stuff. And I honestly wish sometimes that people just saw there's just more to life than making money and like you 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 can give back. And, and, and I know lots of people are driven by legacy and they want to achieve stuff. But realistically, legacy is only like helping other people and legacy lives on by the fact that you've made someone else's life better. And it, it's took me it took me a long time to get to where I got to. And I know there's a guy that rides with you and I've got so much respect for him is Teo Gagenhart. Like the way he uses his platform to try to like create awareness around social issues and stuff. And I just wish that we lived in that world where everyone just saw that because the impact all of us could collectively have over other people's lives is so massive. I just, yeah, it's just funny the journey that you go on through life and some of the, some of the most powerful interactions I've had has just been with other humans. The fact that I've been able to impact their life positively and give them an opportunity that they would never have otherwise had because I'm fortunate. And I, I think in life, if, if you are... If you're in a position, I think you have a moral obligation to lift other people up and help other people be successful as well. Like I, I, I see how fortunate I've been in some regards, like a lot of hard work and determination, but like those chance encounters along the way with Darren helping me. If Darren didn't help me, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I would have spent my life probably in prison or probably dead. So I understand that real importance of helping other people. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask actually about the rowing stuff. Like you said, uh, you really enjoyed it, that feeling afterwards. And obviously it helps when you get a world record but deep down it was just that feeling of just you're just addicted to that the pain really and just pushing your body to the limit and because I'm the, I'm the same like when you get in from a off season for instance after 10 days I'm like Pah. I just feel so lethargic and just you know sluggish and you just want to go out and just 
smash yourself for an hour and you just feel so much better for it and i think it's just yeah you just love pushing your body to the limit every day then isn't it basically it's addictive yeah right as you of a doubt like when when like when i get to like the back half of a marathon and an ironman it's like this this whole sort of mind over matter kicks in and you it's like you embrace the journey of running through the pain. I, I was listening to Kip Chogi talk about this, like when there, there was a documentary doing the marathon and it's like, he goes into this Zen like state through the pain and he just absorbs the pain into his body. Um, and I, it makes me feel alive. Like that's why that's the sensation. I feel like I'm alive. Like I'm in, the, I'm in, I'm present. I'm in the moment. I'm not switched off somewhere else thinking about other stuff. It's just like oh, my whole psyche just goes into that moment and present and and I and like you become so at one with your body, like you can feel if you're running out of energy or you need a bit more. Like you you can just feel how hydrated you are, and it's like your mind and body just completely syncs up. But that's always been the process. Like again, years ago when I was in that cell doing those cell circuits, like I probably wouldn't have verbalized it the same, but it was the same feeling. Like that's what it made me feel like. In that I felt like I was alive. Like I'm existing. Like I'm here. I'm on Earth. Like I'm present. And like moving moving to France and being in the Alps, like. Man, I've had some sensations where I've been out riding my bike for four or five hours in those mountains on my own. And I might have like John Lennon on and I'm riding, I'm riding up out Duez or I'm on the Galibier and, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm out. Like, it's like I've taken some sort of mad powerful drug and I've just been lifted out of that place. Just spiritually, I'm lifted. I'm gone. <laughs> Listening to John Lennon about peace and stuff. It's just, it's just, yeah, I, I just, I love the feeling. I, it, it, again, like, again, we're so fortunate we're able to do it. Like, we're physically able to do it. And it's such a... I'm so appreciative of the fact that I discovered this amazing thing of doing sport and being active and healthy and fit. Um, and I honestly wish every person really understood the value in it and, and society and governments really got it because I think we would live in such a better, healthier world if everyone did have that feeling like we're sharing here. Do you know what, G? Just one thing as well. I was going to ask you a question, right? So two years ago, I was on the Galibier when you was coming through Briançon and you was coming up the Galibia and the tour. And I remember there was a, yeah. there was a corner where all the beef eaters were. And as you was coming up, they put this Welsh Valley music on and mate, the hairs <laughs> on my neck stood up and I was like, what does it feel like being you in the mountains in France? And you can hear this choir music <laughs> coming up. <laughs> That's, that is insane. That's just, you know, what you dream of as a kid, you know, watching it on the telly. Yeah. It's just, I don't know, it's hard to describe it, but it's just that moment was obviously massive. But I think also when you're just going up Alpe d'Huez, just the fans, not not just cheering me on, but just that atmosphere, the, the noise, the smells, the you see all the flags of different nations. like, And it's weird because it's just this wall of noise almost. And you can still hear the British accent through it all. I don't know what it is. I don't know how that happens. But, and yeah, I think when you do see, you know, those beef eaters or you know, some crazy like Brit running alongside you in his underpants. Was that you, by the way? No, it wasn't me, mate. <laughs> but it's just like, <laughs> it's just like that atmosphere is just incredible. And that's what, <laughs> that's what keeps you going. Well, gee, I don't know about you, but this has been uh, a massively inspirational episode of the GTCC. Uh, we go to some places that we expect to on this podcast and we go to some places that we don't expect to go to. So, John, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Yeah, Tom, I just want to reiterate that as well. We've had numerous sirs on, haven't we? We've had countless winners of Olympic gold medals and world titles and this and that. But this story, for sure, is the most inspiring I've heard and the most I've been... As I said, I've read your book. 
We'll send you mine as well. I've got three, by the way. So it'll give you something to do at night on Arbdoes. <laughs> but um, no, really appreciate you coming on and your time, mate, because it's, uh, as I say, inspiring. And sorry, John, I don't think we actually even spoke about your Ironman achievements because, well, the whole story was just, I was just so engrossed in that and so inspired this. Um, but if anyone does want to read more about you and read your book in full, it's called Redemption and all profits are donated to your charitable foundation, which is another example of, well, such a good man that you are. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Right, Tom, it's time to get your Zwift update. Now, while you and producer Lou have a few more weeks to try and up your fitness on Zwift, I thought I'd check in with some of our GTCC members on why they use it and get some tips for you both. And I'm such a nice guy. So here's Sarah for you both. Listen carefully. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I've been using Zwift for 18 months. I first joined Swift when in rehab from an elbow operation, the result of one of those things beginning with a C that we aren't allowed to mention. Not long after I joined, lockdown happened, but Swift became my way of keeping up cardio exercise. It's helped my bike fitness immensely, and when I eventually got back out on the road, I saw a massive improvement in both my speed and confidence. Ah, oh, very nice. And if you fancy joining me, Geraint, Producer Lou, and Sarah on Swift, just go to Zwift.com to start your free trial. We'll see you there. Right, Tom, let's end the pod in the usual style with any other business. Yeah, and we'll start by appointing five more GTCC road captains. Remember, if you want to apply to represent the GTCC in your area, just go on our socials. That is Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Fill in the shiny form. So without further ado, congratulations to... Paul Felton, who is the GTCC road captain for Worcestershire. Jeff Abram, congrats. You've been appointed rep for Manchester. Sid Gaskin, who we hope this season has got better at making Welsh cakes. You remember that disaster in the first series. You are now the official GTCC road captain for North Wales. Kev Hacker, you've got Gloucestershire. Slightly further afield, Justin Wood, you are the new GTCC road captain for Tennessee in the US of A. Um, gee, we've also had a lovely message from our old friends Vinny and Bill from Cafe Velo Verde, who we spoke to in Series 1 in the Cafe episode. Bill said they've had a really busy summer with lots of customers, which is amazing to hear after the pandemic. He goes on to say, I know you're recruiting road captains. We would love to offer up Cafe Velo Verde to host one of the GTCC member meetups. We'd be happy to organise if one of the newly elected road captains wants to get in touch. Gee, I don't think we've got anyone appointed for the Nottingham area, have we? We don't actually, Tom, but I've come prepared and I've had a look at the applications and Andrew Parks has actually applied for Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire. So Andrew will sign you up to Nottinghamshire and you can get in touch with Vinnie and Bill. Nice. It's really coming together, this, G. Okay, next item on the agenda. Laura Kennedy got in touch to offer her services as head of music at the GTCC. Now, the committee's taken a little bit of a backseat this season in favour of the road captains, but we never turned down a good offer. So we got in touch with Laura and we asked what she'd recommend our members should be listening to this month. So, Garrett, what's Laura's first selection? Well, first up, she's gone for the second album from Lost Horizons called In Quiet Moments. Apparently, it's a gorgeous mix of slow-mo psychedelic drifts and sweet soulful grooves. Thoughts, Tom? 
<laughs> Do you want me to read that again? <laughs> no, oh doubt I, got God, it. I, I was stumbling through that one. My thoughts are that your career as a radio DJ um, <laughs> is still a few years away. What is a slow-mo psychedelic drift? Absolutely no idea, but in my head, that sounds a bit sort of too chilled because it depends what you're doing. Like for me, if I'm warming up for a race, I don't want slow-mo psychedelic drifts. <laughs> really i want you know a bit more aggression don't i so but yeah if you're just sort of chilling out and you're just going for a little hour jaunt on zwift then maybe that's right up your street so i've had a little listen to this album g it is an absolute delight laura well played but it is definitely more the sort of the warm down after a race or let's say you've woken up in the morning and you're going to go out for a ride and you've got that little period where you're making your coffee you might have a little bit of something to eat and you're just waking up i think lost horizons works an absolute treat in that scenario by the time you sort of go into the garage or the shed and get your bike out you just step it up a little bit but for that early part of the day ideal um, secondly, G, Laura has recommended the latest album from UK hip-hop's brightest star, Little Sims. It's called Sometimes I May Be Introverted. It's soul, R&B, jazz, and apparently a hugely uplifting album. Yeah, I listened to this as well, because I saw the, the whole um, hip-hop and stuff. And it was nice to listen to, but same thing, yeah, a bit too sort of chilled. Needs to be a bit more aggressive. Not You don't have to be, you know, super sweary, but... You know, just a bit more sort of, you know, get up me. That's what, yeah. What we need is just a couple of different playlists, don't we? Maybe that could be Laura's task for the next next episode is maybe she could do you a warm-up playlist and we could stick it on our socials. Maybe sort of, how many tracks would you need? How long is your warm-up? 25 minutes. 25 minutes of increasingly banging tunes. Do you have any, because I'm guessing you do little mini efforts in your warm-up. Does she need to have a little, like, ramp it up after 10 minutes, then drop it back down, ramp it up a bit more after 15? Yeah, basically, the first 15 minutes is ramping up to race pace. Then you come down, you do a couple of sprints, a couple of minutes, ticking over, and then off you get. So, yeah, I think that build up nicely the first 15. You can come down a little bit, but actually, no, I want to keep going. Keep, keep it intensity as high then for the last 10 minutes. Perfect. Laura, there is your task for the next episode. 25-minute warm-up mix for Go Ant Thomas. Cheers, Tom. That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to Club Secretary Louise Gwilliam, Head of Music Emma Hickman, Head of Social Fion Clark and our Honorary President Mike Carr. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.